If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. Last week for Easter, we were in John chapter 20. We're going to go back a bit this morning. We're going to focus our time this morning on John 18, verse 36. But I'm going to read a bit more of that account for context. We'll start our reading this morning in verse 33. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. John chapter 18, beginning at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open up your word to us, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate our eyes, our ears, and our hearts. That we might learn from your word more of who you are. More of what you have done. And more and more of the glorious work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in Christ's name that we ask this. And all God's people said, Amen. We come this morning to a new sermon series. For the next four weeks, we will be looking at various texts under the heading, A Better Kingdom. We have just spent a little bit more than a year in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And when we have concluded this series, we will take up the book of 2 Samuel and David's kingship and life and covenant with God. But the Lord had laid it on my heart to begin to speak to you all from God's Word about the Kingdom of God. This series is born out of current events. Because it seems like now is a unique and fearful time for Christians. There have been attacks on churches. Our society seems to have gone crazy. We might even ask ourselves, can Christians survive in the world today? 
But what we appear to be seeing is the church coming out of an unusual age where established Christianity had political power. And so what we see now is a twofold hysteria before us. Those who oppose the current political systems blame the church for all of our society's woes and problems with politics. They blame the church even if problems come from those who do not claim the name of Christ. But we also see that there are others who fear that the church will be lost because of the current political environment and change that we are experiencing. What we need to see from God's word is that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And that as a result, its success is never in doubt. We need to understand that while it is good and proper for us to be good citizens, our primary focus is on Jesus' kingdom. And so this morning, I'd like us to see two things. First, the expectations of the world. The world has expectations about life and reality, and yes, even the church and Christianity. Even Jesus Christ. It's good to know and to see these expectations. But then secondly, these expectations are set against the reality of Jesus' kingdom. Because the expectations of the world do not often reflect reality. Especially as it concerns the church and believers and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this account from Jesus' trial before Pilate, mere hours before he would pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. It is my hope that we will see that Jesus' kingdom is an eternal kingdom. It is a kingdom worth focusing on and serving. So the very first thing that we need to see are the expectations of the world. And the world expects Jesus to work through power. That's how the world views Jesus. It views Jesus through the lens that it views everything else in the world. Power and authority. And so our text this morning is set in the context of conflict. It is the well-known Passion Week. Some ministers have probably preached on this text the week before or the month leading up to Easter. You know the story well. Jesus has been brought before Pilate and he is on trial. He has already been before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. He's been questioned and accused. And at the heart of this conflict here is two kingdoms. What Jesus came to establish and those of the world. And so, as we look at the expectations of the world, it makes for a good contrast for us to understand the nature of Jesus' kingdom. You know how that works, where you have contrast to pull out something you want to see. It's all the rage today, in every screen you own, to have something called dark mode. You know what that's like, right? You can, at night, 
change your phone or your tablet over to dark mode so that the background is black and that the lettering is in white or so that the pictures pop before your eyes in low light. You can see what you want to see well against the contrast of the darkness. So it is with our Lord Jesus Christ and His kingdom. We can understand the kingdom of Jesus better if we see what the kingdoms of this world are all about. And so Jesus is now standing before Pontius Pilate. Who is Pilate? Most of us only know Pilate from the gospel accounts. We have a small sketch, some snippets of conversation, a few descriptions. He's the one who questions Jesus and can find no fault in him. And at the same time, he's unwilling to set Jesus free. Have you ever wondered about that? If he finds no fault, why doesn't he set Jesus free? And he attempts to find an out, to find a loophole. He says to the Jews, I understand you have a custom that I can release on the Passover someone to you. Do you want me to release this Jesus to you? And the crowd shouts, no, we won't have him. Give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. Let his blood be on us and our children. So Pilate resigns himself to this. And very publicly, he washes his hands before the crowd and says, I am not guilty of this man's blood. He seems like a very odd fellow. He's a Roman governor, yet he's asking the Jews if he can do certain things. What's going on here? The truth is that there's more to Pilate and his story than we may be aware of at first glance. Pilate was the consummate politician. If Pilate lived in our days, he would have a social media director. And he would have a PR person. And he would also have a crisis management person to make his image the best it could possibly be before every appropriate demographic. Romans, soldiers, Jews. Pilate was a politician. He actually became governor not because he was the most competent man for the job. You know, often we think that the person who should be in charge of a state or be a congressman or a senator should be elected because of their competence and their ability. And that somehow when that doesn't happen, we are at odds with history. That there's no reason why the most competent people shouldn't be in power. Well, let me tell you, Pilate wasn't very competent. The only reason that he was governor of Judea is because he was friends with a man named Sejanus. And Sejanus was the captain of the Imperial Guard, which was much more than a military position. He had the, the right hand and the ear of the emperor. And Sejanus pushed Pilate forward because Pilate was married into the Imperial family. He was married to a granddaughter of an emperor. And so Pilate is sent off to Judea. And we have to admit that Pilate is glad to be governor. He is glad to be in job. In, in charge, but he is not happy to be in Judea. The weather is miserable for him. The people are hostile to him. The culture is a backwater. He's in the praetorium, the headquarters. He basically took over a palace that Herod had built just so that it would be bearable. He doesn't want to be here. 
But he likes power, and he's been in power for seven years, and then his benefactor dies. So Janus dies. So now Pilate is out on a bit of a limb. He's got to be extra careful about what he says, very careful about what he does, because he's got no one back home at Rome singing his praises, supporting him. If the wrong thing happens, he could be on a slow boat back to Italy. And so Pilate lived by power and violence. He did not like the Jews, and he viewed them as rebels. He had no trouble brutally putting down what he thought of as rebellions. So, for example, when he first came to Jerusalem, he had the soldiers march through Jerusalem and even through some of the holy places with banners with the image of the emperor on them, deliberately provoking the Jews, knowing that this would upset them. And then, like any politician, when he wants to get something accomplished and to get credit for it, and there's a cost, he just finds the money wherever he can get it. And so he had a public works project that he wanted to conduct. He needed some infrastructure built. And so what he did was he raided the Jewish temple treasury for the funds. You can imagine how that went over with the Jews. And Luke tells us a story about how he mingled the blood of Galileans with their sacrifices. The best that we can tell, what happened was, the Galileans were gathered, sacrificing to God. They were worshiping. And Pilate viewed this as an insurrection. And so he sent soldiers into the crowd in plain clothes with daggers and weapons to harm and beat and stab the crowd. To bring them into line. To show them who's boss. In his world, power and brutality reigned. So, of course, he views Jesus through this lens. He clearly does not want to bother with what he views as an internal Jewish dispute. We see this in verse 31. Pilate says to the Jews, Take him, that is Jesus, yourselves, and judge him by your own law. Why are you bothering me with this? He's not a Roman. He hasn't broken a Roman law. You're talking about blasphemy and various things about the temple. You deal with this. And as a matter of fact, do you see what Pilate's first question to Jesus is in verse 33? It's nothing about what the Jews had questioned Jesus about. There's no question about blasphemy. There's no question about destroying the temple. There's no question about being the son of God. No, Pilate leads with, are you the king of the Jews? You see, what Pilate's asking is, who has the balance of power here? How will Jesus affect that? And as a matter of fact, he's insulted by Jesus' response. Jesus answers, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answers him. Now, one of the difficulties of a written Bible is that you can't read sarcasm. But that's what we have here. So you have to imagine in your sanctified imagination, in your mind's eye, that Pilate turns to Jesus and in the most sarcastic voice you can bring up says, Am I a Jew? Look at me. Toga? Lictores? Signs of Roman authority? Palace? Roman soldiers? Am I a Jew? How would you think I would know about this? 
Because see, for Pilate, this is all about politics and power. Isn't that so much of what we see today? People talk about Christians today as a voting block. They don't talk about the church and its mission. They may even assume that being a Christian is more about political preferences than faith. They're not concerned about your faith or the Bible. They want to know how you vote and how you will speak out in society, either for or against. That's what the world wants to know. How can we use you in the struggle for power? When people find out that you are a Christian, is that how the discussion goes? Do people find out you're a Christian and their immediate question is, who did you vote for for president? Or what do you think about the Supreme Court? What laws would you change? What do you do then? What does it say if you encourage that kind of thinking about the church? But it's not just the Roman governor. No, we have to remember that before Jesus comes to Pilate, he is before the Jewish authorities. They are the ones who send him to Pilate. Judas betrayed Jesus and a band of soldiers came and they were led by Jewish leaders. These leaders were called the Sanhedrin. That comes from a Greek word meaning to sit or a council, we might say. It's actually translated in many translations as the council. Where you hear the council, that means the Sanhedrin. They were 70 men plus the high priest. And there were two political parties represented in the Sanhedrin. Does this sound familiar? There were Pharisees and Sadducees. And they hated each other. Maybe that sounds familiar. The Pharisees would come up with a proposal and the Sadducees would oppose it just because the Pharisees came up with it. And vice versa. I wonder if that's where the Republicans and Democrats get their party platforms from. They hated each other, but the interesting thing is the only people that they hated more than each other were the Romans. They could get together on hating the Romans. And they could get together, as you know from the Gospel account, on hating Jesus. Because the Romans and Jesus both represented a threat to their political power. And it's interesting that in our modern political age, there is really, to my thinking, only one subject that brings Republicans and Democrats together. And it's the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party. They're not together on infrastructure or on laws or on taxes or on immigration or on the military, not anything. But now they have come together because there is a threat against both of their power from a foreign power. So John describes this incident as happening before the high priest. But we know from the Gospel of Luke that others were there. The council was around as they questioned Jesus. And the council had been trying for some time to find a way to get rid of Jesus. Their motive was political. It was one of power. And that's because Jesus, you will recall, was popular with the people. He was teaching the people. He was healing the people. He was feeding the people. And that made Jesus a risk for them. 
It was a risk to their power and authority that he might take the people and their subjugation away from them to himself. He might represent a new third political party. Now, I want you to stop for a minute and think about the absurdity of that. That these Jewish leaders viewed Jesus as the ancient equivalent of a Ross Perot. Someone who might take their power away from them. But Jesus was also a risk because if the people followed him and did things that the Romans didn't like, the Romans would crack down. You see, every, the Romans were in charge. And one thing you learned was, you don't mess with the Romans. What the Romans wanted from Pilate was for everything to be quiet and calm and for money to flow from Judea to Rome. And if there were any problems, he better take care of it because they didn't want to hear about it. And so Pilate came down viciously hard on any rebellion. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees were afraid that Jesus might start a rebellion. And then the Romans, who had let the Pharisees and the Sadducees run the everyday affairs of state, would take their power away from them. So they saw Jesus as a power political threat. And they were determined to get rid of him to remain in power. If you look at verse 14 of this chapter, they make it clear. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient, we might say pragmatic, that one man should die for the people. They wanted Jesus out of the picture so they could keep their power and authority. This was not a, real, a religious or a theological plot against Jesus. It was a power play. Pure and simple. They expected Jesus to think like they did, and when he didn't, he was a threat. This is the way of the world. It only knows power. So it assumes that Jesus and his followers care about that also. You see this all around you every day, don't you? You see it in your social media feed, in the news, and when politicians talk. They assume that your faith is an expression of power. How do you respond to that? Well, we might ask, how can they assume that? Why do they assume that? If there were no truth to the thought of political power in Jesus' kingdom, no one would believe that that's what Jesus was aiming at. Why did the Jewish leaders feel threatened? Why did Pilate so closely question Jesus? The answer is because all too often the idea of the Messiah's kingdom was political. This was the reason for many people's disappointment with Jesus. They wanted to make him a king. They saw him as a liberating political figure. After feeding the 5,000 in John 6, they tried to take him forcibly to make him a king. But it says that Jesus eluded them and went off into a private place. Just a few days before Jesus is before Pilate. They had welcomed him into Jerusalem as a king. Their hope was that Jesus would free them from Rome and set up an earthly kingdom. Even the disciples were tempted in this manner. You may recall in Matthew chapter 16, Peter makes this wonderful confession. Jesus asked the disciples, whom do you say that I am? 
And Jesus says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, on this confession, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then Jesus goes on to describe the mission of the Messiah, of the Son of God. He tells them that he must suffer many things and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter won't have anything of it. Peter looks at Jesus and he says, No way, Lord! Far be it from you! <coughs> this shall never happen to you. Now I want you to understand how ingrained in Peter's thought it was that Jesus was going to set up an earthly kingdom. This is Peter who walked on water with Jesus. And as he began to sink, Jesus came out to him and rescued him. And when they are back in the boat, Peter looks at Jesus and he says, Get away from me, I am a sinful man. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. And now he's rebuking Jesus about his central mission. That's how ingrained it is in Peter's thought. And you may recall that when Jesus is in Gethsemane and the soldiers come to come get him, Peter resorts to force. He pulls out his sword and he fights power with power. But even after Jesus' death, the story in Luke 24 of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. What we remember about that story is Jesus unfolding all of the scriptures to them to tell them who he is. But do you recall why they were downcast? They're asked. And their answer is, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We thought he would beat up the Romans. We thought he would establish a new Davidic kingdom. We thought we would be living in an Israelite golden age, and now he's died, and it's all a waste, and we're lost. They only saw Jesus through that lens of power. And today we see the heirs of such thinking. Churches hold political rallies instead of worship services. And the irony is that this is true of both sides of the political spectrum. They bring up candidates and tell you to vote for them. They suspend worship. They don't sing how great thou art. They make up hymns about politicians. They don't see the blasphemy of making Jesus and the gospel serve the ends of worldly power. Ministers speak so-called prophecies about political races. And they speak of God's work with primary reference to current politics. Others teach that Christians have to claim such power in order to live victorious lives, that prosperity and power are a sign of God's blessing. And recently, some view Christ's kingdom as being lost because political outcomes are not what they desire. Now, let me be clear here. We should want our nation and the world to reflect the truth of God's word. We should want God's law to be upheld and displayed. But it is when we see the world 
and its power structures not doing that. And our conclusion is that the kingdom is lost, that we make a grievous error. Are you tempted to view Jesus' mission and kingdom this way? To judge the progress of the gospel by the laws that are passed or not passed. The success of the church by your social media feed. To view political races as determinative of the outcome of Jesus' kingdom. Because there is no hope there. You will always be disappointed. Never put your hope there. Well, if that is the expectation of the world, what should our expectation be? If it's wrong to view Jesus' kingdom through the glasses of power and politics, how are we to see it? The leaders on both sides of Jesus' day were looking for power. And so Jesus corrects their vision and ours by pointing us to the reality of his kingdom. After Pilate has questioned Jesus about the charges, Jesus answers. Now it's interesting, Matthew and Mark record a briefer version of this discussion. It goes just something like this. Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, you have said so. Now the words that they use are the exact same words found in John 18, 37. So you are a king. You say that I am a king. Now, the effect of what Jesus says is to say yes. I think sometimes we come to this text and we think Jesus is, is being cute or sarcastic or mysterious. Well, I didn't say it. You said it. You think about it. But I don't think that's what's happening here. Because according to both Matthew and Mark and John, Jesus answers with two Greek words. You, emphatic, say it. And in extra-biblical context, we see these exact words used as an affirmation. Now, part of the problem is, again, the scriptures don't give us tone of voice. And so, if you think about how even we could say that, you can say it dismissively. Yeah, you said it, buddy. Or, yes, as you said. Means completely different things, doesn't it? And so what Jesus is saying here is, yes, I am a king. Because how could Jesus deny that he is a king? But Jesus then makes clear that his kingdom is not what Pilate expects. That's why he answers Pilate that way. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. You see, for Pilate, kingdoms are all about power, armies, force. So Jesus' kingdom appears to be non-existent to him. Jesus has nobody willing to fight for him. Pilate might be looking at Jesus and saying, all your followers have fled. No one is standing by you. No one will even stand by you and speak, let alone fight. How could you possibly be a king? You have no force, no armies. The fact that Jesus is under the control of the Jews and Pilate shows the unreality of Jesus' kingdom to Pilate. But Jesus clarifies this. 
The reason no one is fighting is because Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. If it were, they would fight. And the statement is very clear. When Jesus says it is not of this world, he means that his authority does not come out of this world. It is otherworldly authority. And he means that the origin of his kingdom is not from the world like all other kingdoms. Every other kingdom in the world gets its origin and authority from the world, but not Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is of a different order entirely. The kingdoms of this world preserve themselves by violence and force. Jesus is not defended by the world's means. He is, in effect, telling Pilate that his whole worldview is wrong. Pilate thinks that the Jews and he are in control. Jesus says, I am in control. If it didn't serve the purpose of his kingdom, he would not be here before Pilate now. This is no accident. This is no chance. Jesus is not a victim of circumstances. He, everything is happening exactly as Jesus has determined and purposed. And Jesus emphasizes this in his final sentence in verse 36. But now my kingdom is not from here. That is, Jesus is saying not that the world is unimportant or that his kingdom doesn't affect the world. What he's saying is his kingdom is not of the world. It is not like the world's kingdoms because Jesus' kingdom is certainly in the world. Jesus made that clear in his upper room discourse with the disciples in John chapter 16 and 17. He told them that they are in the world and because of that they will experience tribulation, but that he has overcome the world. And we have seen this throughout history. The world has been profoundly changed by the gospel and the mission of the church. But for the church, we would not have education. Do you know that every Ivy League university was founded for the distinct purpose of training men for the gospel ministry? Christians invented universities. Have you had occasion this past crazy year to go to a hospital? To get a vaccine shot? To be treated? Maybe... A child was born in your home. You had an operation. You could thank the church for that. You know what people did when they got sick in Jesus' day? They died. That's what they did. Because unless you were powerful or rich enough to have your own personal doctor, there was nowhere to go. There were no doctors. There were no nurses. There were no hospitals. The church invented them. So you see how the church has such a massive effect on the world. The whole idea of human rights is a Christian idea. The role of women as being equal in substance with men is a Christian idea. Slavery was stopped not by a Twitter feed, but by the church in England and in America. The abolitionists were Christians who said that chattel slavery is against what the Bible teaches. And they fought against it. 
The whole idea of justice in society. The whole idea of a just war. That war should not be about randomly killing civilians. That you don't fight aggressive wars is a Christian and biblical import into the world. So no one can say that Jesus' kingdom is no earthly good. But the mission of the church is not power to accomplish worldly ends. It's much more important than that. Jesus' kingdom is righteousness and peace. It's the gathering in of redeemed sinners. And this should give you great hope. Whenever you are discouraged about current events, know that Jesus' kingdom is still advancing. You need to know that around most of the world, for most of histories, Christians have not and do not have power. Paul tells us that for Jesus' sake, we are being killed all day long. So when society insists that you abandon God's view of man and woman, or it treats you like a fool for defending babies in the womb, don't be afraid. All is not lost. Jesus is still on the throne. And there is another positive aspect to Jesus' kingdom. He describes how his kingdom has greater power than the kingdoms of this earth. We don't need to view our mission as one of worldly political power. We don't fail Jesus if we don't get good laws passed or if the wrong Supreme Court justice is approved. Jesus tells us what the purpose of his kingdom is. He says, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus came to establish his kingdom, and it is a kingdom of truth. His reign is indistinguishable from the proclamation of the truth. And the truth here is more than an abstract set of facts. It is revealing who God is, the judgment that is to come upon sin, and the salvation that is offered through grace by faith in the Son. This is how subjects are brought into Jesus' kingdom. This is the mission of the servants of the king. When we view Jesus' kingdom in this light, everything changes. We see how fleeting and temporary all the kingdoms of the world are. Everything that is important to the world now will be gone before we know it. Just think about all the kingdoms that have gone away. Do you remember the Soviet Union? As I was growing up, there was real concern whether America would survive its conflict with the Soviet Union. Whether humanity would survive the Soviet Union in a nuclear blast. About every five or six years, there would be a movie that would tell us how everything was lost and how the Soviets were going to nuke everyone. And there was a group of people counting down till midnight, Armageddon, and they got so close to midnight, when they get one minute to midnight, you can't get any closer. And so they would go, well, now we're 45 seconds to midnight. 
Now we're 38 seconds to midnight. And now the Soviet Union is on the dustbin of history. And that's not unique. You remember from your history class, Napoleon, with all of Europe at his feet for 10 years. And then he's gone. Think about the Turkish Empire and the Islamic threat that swept across Christian North Africa and all of the areas of Palestine and Syria, turning churches into mosques, invading Europe, the Turks at the gates of Western Europe. Martin Luther in his day, people wondering whether there would be a Germany or a France or an England ever again, or whether the Turks would take over everything. Now Turkey is a second-rate backwater nation. What about the Mongols? The most powerful army in the history of the world, sweeping not only across all of Asia, but all of Europe. Genghis Khan murdering by the millions, taking whatever they wanted. When was the last time you met a Mongol statesman? They don't exist anymore. We think about countries like Persia, the Roman Empire. They're fleeting. But in their day, they were all-encompassing. We can't fall for that way of thinking. Jesus' kingdom is permanent. As it goes through the world, it takes hold and it cannot be overcome. The gospel changed the Roman Empire. The gospel changed the English Empire. And now, the gospel is our hope for China. You know, there's all sorts of chatter about what do we do with the Chinese threat and they're building navies and this and that. And I need to tell you, our hope is not in tariffs or in aircraft carriers. Our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because I have been there and have sung hymns to praise Jesus with my Chinese brothers and sisters. And they love the Lord Jesus Christ and they sacrifice for him, and they will not be shoved aside by oppression. They are our hope. 80 to 100 million strong. We need to be praying day and night that the church would grow in China, that China would be a Christian nation, a source of good in the world where we are not. That would be my prayer. I would gladly cede power and authority to the Chinese if they would use it to press the gospel in our world instead of the nonsense that comes out of our political authorities. That's my hope. Jesus' kingdom transforming the world. The apostles saw this and they acted on it. Sometimes we forget what the world was like in Acts. In the days of the Acts of the Apostles, Roman society was a mess. Homosexuality was rampant. Divorce was everywhere. Infanticide was common. There was injustice everywhere. Wars were constantly being fought. Violence was around. And so, what did the apostles do? Did they lobby Rome to change things? Did they insist that their mission was a societal change? Did they draft legislation for Nero? Was political activism and community organizing their way? 
Now, it's not as if they didn't have opportunities. You remember Paul tells us in the epistle to the Philippians that he had people of Caesar's household who worked directly with the emperor that he could speak the gospel to. Throughout the book of Acts, we see that they spoke to leaders, governors, the equivalent of mayors. They spoke to leaders and politicians. But what did they do? What was important to them? They preached the gospel. They established churches. And then you know what they did? They went back and strengthened the churches they'd established. They focused on the truth. On bearing witness to the truth. So that all of those who are of the truth, as Jesus says, would hear his voice. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. That means you do not need to fear the world. When things happen in the world that are wrong and troubling, it does not mean that Jesus is no longer in control. Jesus' agenda is not the world's agenda. Jesus' power is not the world's power. Take heart. You are not dependent on the world and its outcomes. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you belong to his heavenly kingdom. Your hope is not in taxes or in laws or in leaders. Your hope is in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. His kingdom will never fail. Let's pray.